If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the September 14th, 2020 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, to honor the 11th anniversary of the I'm from Driftwood LGBTQ Story Archive, we talk with its founder, Nathan Mansky. And for the 30th anniversary of that iconic Madonna Vogue number on the MTV Video Awards, we gather all the dancers and singers, except for Madge. But first, we honor Mark Bingham's death 19 years ago on 9-11 with a kitchen table conversation with his mom. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to United's Flight 93, bound for San Francisco. We are now boarding first class Mark Bingham was born to Alice Hoagland on May 22, 1970, and died at 10.03 a.m. on September 11, 2001, when with a few other passengers, he stormed the cockpit of United Flight 93 and fought to prevent members of Al-Qaeda from using the plane to kill hundreds, maybe thousands, of additional victims. Instead, the plane crashed into a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Mark was 6 feet 4 and 225 pounds. He was a lifelong rugby star. In college, he was president of his fraternity, and, oh yeah, he was gay. I'm Alice Hoagland. Uh, I'm the mother of Mark Bingham, who was killed on September 11th, 2001, on United Flight 93 that crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Mark was incredibly protective of you. One of the phrases repeated over and over in the documentary is, don't tell my mom. Oh, yeah, well, that's that's kind of the way it was. I learned a lot about Mark after he was killed, and I learned things like months and years later. His uh, rugby coach in high school, I didn't mean to let the cat out of the bag, Dan said when he told me there wasn't really true that his, uh, his big thigh cut did not really come from a Fijian farmer. It came from a plate glass door that was charged through by Mark on the way to trying to get away from the police down there. And the time that Mark actually knocked over, tackled the Stanford tree, which is the mascot for Stanford University. I didn't hear about that until after Mark was bailed out of jail by my brother Vaughn, Mark's uncle. And uh, it was frightening to behold <laughs> and to learn about it later that the Stanford tree had been taken out by an angry and irate uh, and slightly overwrought cow guy named Mark Bingham. <laughs> 
As I understand it, the fingerprints that were generated when Mark was arrested for taking out the Stanford tree were the ones that were used to identify him at the crash site. In a crash like that, the human body acts very much like a large, soft envelope, and the things that are left are feet and hands. And I imagine that that's what was left of Mark when they shipped him back in a beautiful casket in the aftermath of 9-11. What's the significance of the film's title, With You? With You is what I used to hear all the time when I stood on the sidelines. It's a common phrase that the rugby players use to orient and to let their fellow teammate who is holding the ball and running with the ball, let them know where you are so that they can throw the ball to you in a lateral pass if they need to. I'm with you, I'm with you. And this is what Mark used to say as he and his buddies were advancing the ball down the field. It's a very common phrase among ruggers. On September 11th, 2001, you were visiting your brother, sound asleep, the phone rang. 6.44 in the morning, the phone rang, and we were all dead asleep out in Saratoga, you know, a continent away from New York. And I thought, oh, I can't get up and answer the phone. I hope somebody does. And I heard it ring again. And I heard Carol Phipps, a family friend, answer it. And I heard her pad past the room where I was sleeping. And I heard her knock on Vaughn and Kathy's door. And I heard Kathy get out of bed and run to the phone. And I heard Kathy say, we love you too, Mark. Let me get your mom. And she saw me standing in the hallway and she said, Alice, come talk to Mark. He's been hijacked. And boy, I was trying hard to get my head around that one. Came and, and uh, listened. And I heard Mark's voice. He said, Mom, this is Mark Bingham. And he often said, this is Mark Bingham when he was talking to business associates on the phone. But he didn't usually say that to me. <laughs> and I could tell that he was trying to be very focused and composed and businesslike. So he let that slip out. <clears throat> Mom, this is Mark Bingham. I just want to tell you that I love you. I'm on a flight from Newark to San Francisco. And there are three guys on board who have taken over the plane. And they say they have a bomb. You believe me, don't you, Mom? And I said, yes, Mark, I believe you. Who are those guys? And then he was sort of distracted, and I heard the voices of the guys he was making this big plan of revolt with. They were talking. They were already making their plan. And then he came back to me, and he said, I'm calling you from the air phone. And the FBI told me later that he was in 25 DEF calling. It was a big, empty airplane. There were only 40 innocent people on board. This is Steve Pride. I'm talking to Alice Hoagland about her son, Mark Bingham, who was aboard United Airlines Flight 93 on September 11, 2001. Alice, tell me about listening to the tape. The cockpit voice recording was really an eerie and, and ghastly experience in a way, and yet it was very cathartic and important that we heard it. We were invited by the FBI to come to uh, Princeton, New Jersey to listen to it, and, and boy, listen, we did. A bunch of uh, Flight 93 family members sat together with uh, headsets on and an over, overhead screen with translations of the Arabic that was being spoken. And it's a 31-minute tape that runs in a continuous loop so if it gets to be 31 minutes then they, and it starts erasing again so the actual takeover of the airplane by the terrorists Siad Jara and his three 
Thug Buddies was actually erased by the time, uh, because the plane crashed 31 minutes plus after the time of the takeover. Fortunately, the takeover was actually caught because we think that Leroy Homer, the uh, first officer, keyed his mic open and the words that were spoken by Captain Dahl, get out of here, get out of here, came down and were heard by the fellows ground control in Cleveland. So we do have a pretty good audio record of the takeover right up through the crash. The first 20 minutes or so of the cockpit voice recording are pretty dreary. I can remember hearing such sounds as a flight attendant working just outside the cockpit door. Sometimes you hear phrases coming out of the very automated system there, and I can remember the sound of the autopilot kicking in and out. It was unusual for it to go in and out like that, but I realized that the terrorist pilot, quote-unquote, Zia Jara, did not know how to turn off the autopilot, so he kept it on. He was fighting with it, and he had dropped the altitude of the plane so low, it's supposed to be flying 30,000 feet when it's going 600 miles an hour, but he was going 600 miles an hour at about 2,000 feet and then 1,500 feet and then 1,000 feet. People in Pittsburgh remember the sight of a great big 757 out of control, whipping its wings back and forth and flying low over their city, and it crashed a few minutes later, 90 miles south in Shanksville. And what we heard as family members was the sound that was picked up by three microphones, two in the headsets of the pilots, and one mounted on the aft bulkhead. And even though it was technically flawed and barely audible. It was still just enough to, to turn you white. It, we could hear the sound of people mounting a revolt in the back, and we could hear the lead terrorist asking his buddy, are they fighting? Are they fighting in the back? Hold up the hatchet so they will see it and be afraid. He was thinking that if you hold up the fire axe to the peephole, the people that are outside can see it. Well, that's not the way that peephole worked. It was heartening to hear how frightened those terrorists were when they realized that their plan, their ugly plan, years in the making, was going to fail because three or four or five or six guys in the back decided that they were going to put up some resistance. They took a vote and they they grabbed what weapons they could and they ran forward. And I can just visualize Mark with his long legs running over those seats and his buddies running up the aisles on foot. This was my workplace and now it was a battleground where my son and his good friends there, his pickup buddies, also athletes, a football quarterback, another rugby player, a basketball star from Mark's very alma mater, Los Gatos High School, and Mark Bingham, and whoever else, Alan Bevan, Richard Guadagno, wonderful people on board that flight. All of them athletic. They ran forward, and you could hear the sound of it as the cockpit voice recording picked up. Now we didn't hear Arabic voices so much. Now we heard English spoken in American accent by a bunch of very motivated guys, and it was, get him, get him, in the cockpit, in the cockpit. If we don't get in there, we'll die. And Dina Burnett tells me that that was the sound of, of her husband, Tom. And then the other guys picked it up. It reminded me so much of a rugby match. And the other guys picked it up. I could hear Mark yelling, in the cockpit. And Alan Bevan, perhaps, and Todd, and Jeremy, and Tom, all of them chanting like that, encouraging one another. And you could hear the sounds of blows being struck. 
and you could hear the sound of the two terrorists being dispatched. <laughs> it was a very vigorous time. <laughs> they, they fought as best they could. They used the liquor cart as a battering ram against the cockpit door. And I wish I'd had another minute when Mark called me. Mom, this is Mark Bingham. I just want to tell you I love you. I wish that I'd had another minute before, before we were cut off, and I could have told him, Mark, there is a cockpit key just a few feet away from the cockpit door. You get in there, you turn it. It's easy. It's a flimsy door. It pulls out into the cabin, and you can get in there easily. But they didn't know that. And they, they apparently, according to the FBI, they used a liquor cart from the forward galley as a battering ram against the cockpit door. And you could hear the crockery, the, the glass, and plates pitching back and forth in that galley. And it, it was an onslaught that went on for a good seven, eight, ten minutes. And Ziad Jarrah finally realized that he was going to have to stop them by doing what he did. And an eyewitness on the ground says that he saw this enormous plane rise straight up and come up over the horizon and tip upside down and plunge straight down into the ground. The FBI tells us that the cockpit probably sheared off. They found some remains in the burning hemlock trees. But when the paramedics and the other emergency equipment arrived, as, as best they can a few minutes later out there in Shanksville, way out in a remote area, they couldn't find any evidence of the airplane. They saw uh, pieces of uh, paper floating around, and, and it, it took some digging to find the remains of the airplane. It had buried itself so thoroughly and so fast in the loamy soil out there in southwest Pennsylvania that there was nothing left of it. They had to dig it out, and they found the cockpit voice recorder and the, and the flight data recorder. And I was so gratified on the late afternoon of September 11th to, to get verification from the FBI of what I'd been telling people, that it was a studly group of passengers that got together and mounted a revolt. It was not a coincidence or an accident that the plane came down short of the terrorist target of the Capitol Dome in Washington. Watching the home movies of Mark in the documentary, I... It's pretty clear that he would have been impervious to my gaydar. So when he was younger, did you ever have any suspicions about his sexuality? I don't have gaydar, but Mark used that expression a lot. But I was uh, dumbfounded when he came out to me on August 27, 1991. I was just astounded. I did not receive the news very well. Mark really set me on a spiritual journey. And he has taught me how to live my life, and he has taught me how important it is to be open to people who are not like me and to realize that there is much love and redemption to be, to be earned. And I need to ask the forgiveness of the gay community for being you know, just slightly uh, um, unaware and uh, ungracious at first. Fortunately, Mark had the grace to be patient with me, and I'm so grateful that he had enough love for both of us for a while. And I did come around and I began to realize, hey, I need to revise my attitudes and I need to speak out against the stereotyping that the gay community is receiving. And Mark tells me that there are not enough gay heroes and people to look up to as role models. And that needs to change. 
And as Mahatma Gandhi said, be the change. And, and that's what I want to do. I want to be the change. And I'm in such good company now. There are so many people who are speaking up and coming to the fore and being good spokespersons for the LGBT community. I think that everyone, everyone should be fully enfranchised with the mainstream and should be proud of their sexuality and marry whom they love. This has been a conversation with Mark Bingham's mom, Alice Hoagland. The documentary is called With You. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Even though he could not marry Or teach your children in our schools Because who he wants to love Is breaking your God's rules He stood up on a Tuesday morning In the tear he was brave And he made his choice And without a doubt A hundred lives he must have saved Now you cannot change this And you can't erase this You can't pretend this is not the truth Stand up America Hear the bell now as it tolls Wake up America It's Tuesday morning Come on, let's roll Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, A hero is no braver than an ordinary man, but he is brave for five minutes longer. Stick around. We'll be right back. The Homo Monument, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Unveiled in Amsterdam on September 5, 1987, the Homo Monument is the world's foremost public memorial of lesbians and gay men who were harassed, imprisoned, or executed during World War II as part of Hitler's so-called social purification campaign. The idea for a public monument had circulated in the gay community since the war ended. The event that galvanized support occurred in 1970 when gay activists were arrested for attempting to lay a lavender wreath on Dom Square in Amsterdam during its annual national memorial service. The wreath, which was intended to memorialize the thousands of lesbians and gay men who were persecuted during World War II, was removed by police and denounced as a disgrace. But government approval for the monument was secured in the early 1980s, and 180,000 euros were raised to build it. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Josh Behrman. Hi, I'm Alec Mappa, and you're listening to IMRU. Yes, it's true. You could have more friends, a better job, more money, and enjoy the kind of life you've always dreamed about. Homosexuals in America are better educated, travel more, and enjoy a higher standard of living than their straight counterparts. If you've ever sat alone watching television on a Saturday night, or felt like your life was going nowhere, maybe homosexuality is right for you. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio. September 16th, 
was the 11-year anniversary of the LGBTQ story archive, I'm from Driftwood. Steve Pride sat down with its founder in New York a few years ago and files this report. Maya Angelou once said, There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. Luckily, a friend of mine in New York City has made it his mission to preserve and share your story. My name is Nathan Maskey, and I'm the founder and executive director of I'm From Driftwood, the LGBTQ story archive. It's an online archive of first-person LGBTQ stories from all different people, all different places, all different cultures, communities, and backgrounds. And the purpose of all the stories in the archive is to help queer people, particularly in small towns, feel not so alone. And I say particularly because isolation is not exclusive to geography. It's more of a personal feeling. And you can feel isolated and alone as a gay person here in midtown Manhattan. You know, it doesn't have to be Driftwood, Texas, but uh, the idea is that if you feel alone in whatever you're going through, wherever you are or whoever you are, that you're not. You're not alone. And there's a great big community out there who has experienced a lot of similar situations and stories that you're going through. So that's it in a nutshell. Why is it called I'm from Driftwood? I saw the film Milk in 2008 when it first came out. The day after seeing it, I was thinking about a popular photograph of Harvey Milk. He's in the San Francisco Pride March, and he's holding this sign that says, I'm from Woodmere, New York. And I was thinking of that photograph and thinking, like, why are you saying you're from Woodmere, New York, where it is a town that most people have never even heard of? You know, it's this town on Long Island. And everyone associates him with San Francisco. You know, the first openly gay elected official in San Francisco, Harvey Milk, is synonymous with San Francisco. What that meant to me is that he, like so many other people, aren't from these big gay meccas. They're not from New York City. They're not from San Francisco. They're from these towns. And myself, I live in New York, but I'm not from here. I'm from Driftwood, which is a very small town in Texas. So I felt like it was a passing of the baton. Harvey Milk and that simple statement saying he's from Woodmere, New York, made me think of this idea that we're from everywhere and we are everyone. And here I am in New York City, but I'm from Driftwood. And all the storytellers start their story by saying where they're from, just to continue furthering that idea that you're not alone. Tell me about the collection. When we first started out, it was only written stories. And I had very simple guidelines. And basically, it was, it has to be a story. It can't be a diary entry about your thoughts on marriage equality. It has to be something that happened to you. It has to have a story arc, and it has to be a true story from yourself involving you being LGBT. And the only times that I ever didn't post an entry was if it wasn't a story. And I'd email the author back and explain to them, just, can you resubmit? But you mentioned this. Can you actually tell me how that affected your life personally? So I just make sure that people actually submitted real stories. And... It was soon after I launched that one of my really good friends, now one of my best friends, and he's on our board of directors, Marquise, he had the idea of doing a video story. And he basically said, why don't we sit down with people, they tell you their story, and I'll edit it into a three to five minute video story. And we did two in one weekend, and it just turned out great. And now it's actually become the main focus of the site. So every Wednesday, we post a new video story. So it's become a weekly video story program. And we still get written stories, but they're not as prominently featured on the site just because 
people have really attached themselves to the video stories. Where do you gather the stories? Once we started doing video stories, we were collecting stories mostly from people who are living here in New York City. And then Marquise lives in Philadelphia, so I would travel there. It's a two-hour bus ride, easy commute, and get some stories from Philly. What's great about New York and Philly are people move to New York and Philly a lot from other places. So we were still capturing stories from people from all over, but consistently they all made the decision to move to a big city. And I wanted to get stories from people who maybe didn't make that decision. So that's where the idea of the 50-state story tour came from. I wanted to go out to these other towns and cities outside of New York or the Northeast and get stories from LGBTQ people in Idaho and Kansas and, of course, Texas and all these other towns and cities. Or even if it's in New York, what about another city or town in New York? And so that was late 2010, early 2011 that we did that. So it took four months. We drove to 48 states and flew to Hawaii and Alaska, but it was going to each town. And and even the way we get stories here, we work with different organizations. So we'll call or email PFLAG or 40 to None, which is part of Cindy Lauper's True Colors Fund. So we work with other organizations and basically say, hey, look, we're a story archive. We want to collect stories. So do you have any storyteller from your organization or somebody that you helped doing the work that you do that we can get their story? And then we can direct people to you who might need your services. So using 40 to None as an example, they help homeless LGBT youth. And they found us a storyteller. We got their story and then had their logo on at the end with a link to them. So if anyone watches this story, they kind of pick up where the story leaves off. What's the hardest part of the project? One thing that I hate the most of all the things that I ever hear that I've done with I'm From Driftwood is when people tell me they don't have a story. I'll nearly pull my hair out. I'm just like, everyone has a story. Whether your story is boring, that's the most common. Oh, my story is boring. It's like, no, it's not. It might be boring to you, but if you're coming out with just all roses and wonderful and you just gated right on through it and your parents were accepting, that's actually really inspiring for people to know that there's a bright future coming for us. And then the opposite, but kind of in the same vein, is if somebody says their story is too negative and they want to share something happy, but sharing the negative stories are equally, if not more important than the positive stories, because it shows that either a struggle still exists or it shows how bad it was, but how much better it's gotten. And also someone might be going through that same story. What if somebody shares a story that says, oh, I wasted my whole life and I came out at 80. What if someone is 79 and they're still in the closet? What if they could get one year back that the other person didn't? What if they're 12 years old and they hear that and they're like, oh, I shouldn't waste my life. Sharing our stories is the most powerful tool that not just the LGBT community could do, but anyone can do. And everyone has that power to share their story and make a difference in people's lives by sharing it. Why is this the right time for I'm from Driftwood? Forever, for the rest of history, there will never be a bigger gap between the experiences of the elders and the youth. Because people who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, it was a completely different world for them. And right now we have people who are in their 70s and 80s who were arrested for dancing with people of the same gender. At the same time, at this moment in time, we have people who are coming out as transgender at four years old. It's nearly impossible to imagine that difference and that the gap between the differences will never be wider. And I really want to capture that like a snapshot. You're even planning a new project focusing on this gap. How will that work? The way I want to do that is by having 
younger listeners listen to the older storytellers, and that's mutually beneficial because the younger generation gets to listen to these wise men as it would have been in the past. And also the older people get it finally for once, especially they of all people have lived such closeted lives or more so than the rest of us. And they get to understand the value of their own story and pass their story on and and have that feeling of no matter what their life was like, that their story now matters. And the younger LGBT people truly do value their stories and their lives. How can a listener share their story? Just go to ifromdriftwood.com, click share your story, and then click share your video story and fill out the form. And we have somebody in Los Angeles who's a fantastic videographer and editor, and he will come to you and get your story. This has been a conversation with Nathan Mansky, founder of I'm From Driftwood. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. All of these lands across my Tell you the story of who I am So many stories of where I've been And now I got to where I am But these stories don't mean anything When you've got no one to tell them to I am RU and I'm from Driftwood. Both serve as archives and time capsules of the LGBTQ tribe, and the importance of this mission is paramount. In 2016, on the release of the documentary Strike a Pose, Abby Dees and Wenzel Jones sat down with the dancers and backup singers from Madonna's 1990 Blonde Ambition World Tour. Hello, I'm Carlton Wilborn, and I'm one of the dancers from the Blonde Ambition Tour. I'm Kevin Stay, and I'm also one of the dancers from the Blonde Ambition Tour, also dance captain and associate choreographer. Hi guys, my name is Luis Camacho. I'm also one of the dancers of the Blonde Ambition Tour and co-choreographer of the Vogue video. Hi, my name is Donna DeLore, and I sang and danced on that Blonde Ambition Tour. Hi, I'm Nikki Harris, and I'm one of the singers, dancers, and uh, all-around pain in the butt on the blonde end. <laughs> yes, a spiritual goddess. And spiritual goddess, yes. yes. The question I have for the women specifically is the Blonde Ambition Tour was so much a gay thing. You were surrounded by these gay male dancers, and they were orbiting around a gay male icon. Where was your place in that universe, and how did you assert yourself? I felt very comfortable. I didn't feel like I really had to assert myself. Nikki and I had started working with Madonna in 1987, so we'd already been on one round of uh, Camp Madonna, and we'd already done our first tour being very young. Yeah. Actually, the gay thing for me, also because we were dancers, too. We had been around yeah, dancers, so that's being, another thing. you know, that was not a big deal I for grew us. Up. What yeah. was a big deal is that we were in a much more quieter way of living as far as our lifestyle. So this was the first time that we were around dancers who were definitely saying, Lewis gave me my first fragrance. Kevin <laughs> gave me my first <laughs> Tell your boyfriend that. Actually, he was the first time that a man came to me and said, I know you like me, but I'm gay. So I was like, oh. <laughs> Just the all. I was completely in love with Slam. Yeah. I mean, the moment he walked in. Really? Was I mean, everybody, but I was just like, 
he was just the most beautiful. And he is still beautiful. He's just yes. not here yes. today. Yes. Oh, yeah. Everyone in this room is beautiful, I have to say. Everybody got better. Yeah. <laughs> that's one huge perception from the film is how interested I am in all of you. When I watched the film, I was really struck by how confident all of you looked. Way back when, 25 years, I can't believe it. I'm a singer, and seeing you just grabbing it as singers and seeing you guys grabbing it as men, as these dancers. And then when I saw the film, I saw what vulnerable kids you were. And you even described yourselves that way a little bit, and Madonna was sort of this mom figure. Did you have any idea at the time how people were viewing you or what it meant to people to view you? Not at all. There was no social media for us to have sort of an immediate feedback of, right. of people's response. So we just did our show and then we rushed off to the next city. So there really wasn't this sense of a response of understanding how we were landing with people other than the regular fans would just come and scream. <laughs> so we, we didn't really have an understanding of any, anything of Yeah, depth. I mean, at the venues when the shows were happening or when we went in to do our sound check because they would allow some of the audience to come in early and you know that sort of ramp up in their energy we could tell and Lewis says it in the film that they would be screaming out all of our names mm -hmm. you know or we'd see a banner with Donna and mm -hmm. Kevin and Nikki and everybody so we could see it like that but to be aware of it after the job was over, not so much. And it yeah. seems like the impact is something that's continued. Like yes. it, the bigger impact is really not just the show and the entertainment value of the show, but sort of the impact on how people felt freer to express themselves over time. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the impact that has continued, when I was watching the flashbacks to Truth or Dare, which I haven't seen since it came out, it looked as if you guys were softening the ground for the tidal wave of reality programming that we're now mm -hmm. swimming in. Because that was the first time when I look back and you think, oh, that's when we got used to cameras just being up in everybody's face in bed and doing what people do. I mean, of course, you couldn't have known it at the time, but how does it feel to look back and think, wow, I was there at the birth practically? Well, to be clear, there are a lot of concert movies. I think this film was the first in that it kind of delved more into... Sex, I think, is the word we're looking for. <laughs> or that. <laughs> Social <laughs> but, issues. Well, and into the lives, into our lives. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just a concert movie. It, mm. it was really a documentary into backstage. And it's also her willingness to be exposed and to share herself behind the scenes, looking bad or being bitchy or whatever it was that she was sharing. Like, that's unheard of. Stars are very careful with their images and they give forth a very, you know, carved little presence and, and she was just much more open and free like that. Her view is what created this whole sense of reality TV. And as we all wonder now when we watch reality TV, how much of it was scripted or was it truly reality that far back? Well, I mean, you know, all of that is subject because to some degree, once I say, can you guys sit over here or come and stand over there or come and let's back in let, again, yeah, <laughs> do then, that again. No, it ain't organically real. Every reality project that we witness is sculpted to some degree. Don't even say something. Yeah, I think what happened was as we were on tour, things would happen like we started on our own with a film crew playing Truth or Dare at dinner. Oh, yeah. In Spain with oh, yeah. Drinking Sangria playing Truth That's or right. Dare. And then it got around, you know, I'm sure Al <laughs> totally. heard about it. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, ooh, let's That's do that with Madonna at dinner. Yeah. So things were, they were organically happening between us. Yeah. 
and then it would it would spark an idea to have right. that be a yeah. scene and then we were all at a dinner and we all played together and then things spontaneously obviously happened. And Donna and Nikki, you had been doing this with Madonna for a while. This was not new to you. This was new in many ways to you guys and the other four dancers. This exposure to that level of fame and the Madonna frenzy that happened in the film Strike a Pose really goes into sort of the unexpected effects of that on you guys. But did you sort of look at them and kind of go, oh, we've been down this road. We know a little bit about what to expect. I know that I didn't. I knew I was older than them, but I was young enough that we had seen Madonna turn into a pop star. So we had Mm -hmm. got to that part. And we knew by this tour that she was a bona fide superstar. We knew that. We also... Well, you know, we, we got to go through Sean with her. We got to go through the entrance of Warren Beatty. We had done soundtracks with her. We've done albums. Award shows. So all great. kind of stuff like that. But what we did not get to do is see her really put her life around her dancers mm-hmm. the way she had done with them. And then you throw on top of that putting a camera around it all, too. So I think Warren said it best. This is really what you really want to do. Who would think somebody would want to have a camera follow? Right. Well, Apparently everybody. Apparently everyone. (laughs) Maybe and maybe. I mean, and I guess that is still the $6,000 question. Really? Does everybody want it? I don't know if everybody wants it because some people still find it really hard to tell the truth, especially on camera. Especially on camera. That's what this movie shows. Because there's some unsaids in this movie that are said very loudly. Yes. Mm -hmm. Of course we were young like you guys, and that was probably my favorite tour ever. And... But the one thing I did notice was you guys had endless amounts of energy to go out after the show. We've been meeting for like a tea or something. And there you guys are after the show, dressed up in these clothes. I was, it was inspiring. And then we'd be like, we got to go out too. Come on. To the crack of dawn. And you always knew where you're going. Oh, that, that was, was crazy. So and that, these were the first people made me feel like I didn't know nothing. I was so great. Like, like, are you really gonna wear that? You know you really could put some fragrance on. You know you really are you really gonna wear your hair like that? And I'm like, I felt bad. Like I'm older, but yet they're telling I'm like, I guess I'm not. I'm not wearing these earrings with this. And how do you know where to go in Tel Aviv? Exactly. I don't know where to go in Chicago. You know where to go in Tel Aviv? There is a secret gay network that preceded the internet and I it's it's a boy gay network and it still exists. I want to hear about it. I never had a membership to it. (laughs) No, really, how did you know where to go in Tel Aviv? Uh, I'm not even really sure. It was always just a matter of Tel Aviv. On this one we didn't go to Tel Aviv, but certainly like Spain and Madrid and like and like Amsterdam. I think people came to us. Come well, out yeah. to the, come out to this club yeah, tonight. We're like, okay, I heard yeah. that there's a something something, yeah. and we're all gonna go. And then once we all decided on that, then we're our own party. We can go anywhere. Well, there was always <laughs> that one person that stayed behind, mm-hmm. that followed us to the hotel, yeah, yeah. that yeah. hung out in the lobby, that would us. and yeah. they would talk us up and invite us somewhere. And we were like, sure, let's go. Yeah. As well as <laughs> it's hard to sleep when there's thousands of people down at the bottom of your hotel. Oh, yeah, screaming. <laughs> we, like, might well, we might as well go out, y'all, because we're not going to sleep. Plus, we were so high from the adrenaline, you yeah. know. They had style. They had grace. Winslow and Abby give good face. Stick around. We'll be right back with the rest of their interview after this quick break. The symbolism behind the Homo Monument, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The Homo Monument 
A memorial in the center of Amsterdam was designed to inspire and support lesbians and gays in their struggle against denial, oppression, and discrimination. The monument borrows the symbol that marked gay men in German concentration camps, a pink triangle, which in the gay liberation movement was reclaimed as a symbol of empowerment. Designer Karen Don used three triangular platforms of pinkish granite that are situated to form a giant triangle. One of the triangles, which juts into the canal, is where flowers are left in remembrance of the persecuted. Another triangle is raised and used as a gathering spot. And the third triangle bears an inscription in Dutch which translates to such an unlimited longing for friendship. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Josh Behrman. This is David Dean Botrell and you are listening to IMRU. Hello, I'm Bruce Valanche. When I'm not lounging at Sky Bar with Bed or Whoopi, more olives, girl, thank you, I'm listening to IMRU. Hi, I'm Kate Clinton, global lesbian, and I love to listen to the longest-running gay and lesbian radio program in Southern California. It's called IMRU. Hi, this is Chastity Bono, and you're listening to IMRU. Hi, this is Jeff Straker, and when I want something deep and probing, I listen to IMRU. Hello, I'm Stephen Fry. The great Oscar Wilde once said, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. That's why it's imperative that we stay informed. An excellent way to do this is by listening to Southern California's longest running radio program for the gay and lesbian community, IMRU. Marlon Brando, Jimmy Dean, on the cover of a magazine. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. Now back to our interview with the Blonde Ambition team. Just a reminder, I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. And we're in a studio filled with folks from Madonna's 1990 Blonde Ambition Tour, talking about that tour, their lives, Madonna, the 1991 film Truth or Dare, and the 2017 documentary Strike a Pose. Let me ask you a little bit about somebody who is not in the film today and apparently loved by everyone was Gabriel. And Gabriel uh, passed away from HIV, and I was just wondering if you could share some of your memories of Gabriel and what he brought to this group. Where do we start? Where do we start? He was just just beautiful, and and, and it was one of those, like, not because I had a, that kind of crush on you. <laughs> Gabriel had this, like, oh, my God, he's just so precious. Like right. I always thought of Gabriel like aesthetically and energetically as like a cherub. Mm-hmm. He was just like this beautiful, beautiful. delicate, but owning space mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, he was just a gentle force. Oliver in the film, who is the one straight fellow of the of the dancers, I, I love his story of him sort of having getting over his stuff was so, so sweet. But he described Gabriel as innocent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That sounds right. It's not that he was innocent, but it was right. just that his energy yeah. about it was always so positive and bright mm-hmm. and light and giving, and the way he moved was so 
beautiful. There was a beauty about him mm-hmm. always. He was an enigma to yeah. me and Jose. Yeah. Really? yeah. Well, yeah. Well, me and Jose came from the low east side of New York, so What's your we, scam? Did, we didn't have a lot of friends that were like Gabriel. Yeah. Just you know, we. So I don't know. He was just so nice, as yeah. well as as well as you know? so. Be, I, I will say this in front of my two brothers. I love y'all down, but Kevin and Gabriel were two of the first dancers that I was always going. They do that. How did they do that? They tumbled. They danced. They could do ballet. They did everything and looked effortless doing it. Just like, I was like, are they about to, he just flipped four times. He just did a flip and (laughs) got this much room. How's he doing that? How is he doing that? Between you and Gabe, I used to just be in awe at watching you guys dance every night. I think all of us kind of wanted to be around him a lot. I know for myself, if I ever wanted to go anywhere or go have dinner or go shopping or go walking around or go explore anything, he was the first person I called. Mm -hmm. Always. Because I knew I'd have a good time. I knew it would be relaxing. It would be fun. Mm -hmm. I knew I could share anything I wanted to with him and it would all be accepted and enjoyed. Mm -hmm. I look to Gabriel if I ever wanted just a quiet conversation. Mm -hmm. It was Gabriel, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we had all this energy, mm-hmm. and it was like yeah. the kiki was always with us. But if I just wanted just a respite from that, yeah. I would turn to Gabriel. And that's who he was for me. One of the things that the film goes into in great detail, three of the seven dancers were HIV positive. And one of the things the film talks about that is so moving to me is that none of the men that were HIV positive shared this with anybody. Everybody was quiet about it. And in many ways, Strike a Pose is a coming out story about this. I am one of the three. I was diagnosed in 1985. And the beauty about this project right now is it's allowing me, because I'm so on the other side of it, the it being all the shame and the just the self chastisement thing that was going on I'm so on the other side of that mm-hmm. and so it's amazing right now so that feels like the coming out like what's coming out is my joy mm-hmm. of life mm-hmm. and my freedom <clears throat> to be authentically me mm-hmm. across the board That's beautiful. yeah really beautiful. and we've seen one of our own pass Gabriel passed from this and didn't even share it I asked him point-blank mm-hmm. are you HIV positive do you have AIDS he said no closest person to me and like couldn't even share it with me it definitely shows how how far we've come it shows how much progress we've made i remember that time being so scared i remember one time i was dating someone and we were getting intimate it was in the evening and somebody called me (laughs) somebody (laughs) called me can you imagine answering the phone you're you have a date someone's over at your home and they say, Donna, I just got to let you know, he's HIV positive. Wow. Yeah. So you put your clothes back on and left? <laughs> well, it wasn't, we hadn't gotten, you know, we were like just kissing and stuff. But I, and right. who knows? Maybe no, he, right. 10 minutes later, he's going to tell me, right. you know? Right. But that I got that phone call. And that was the reality we mm. were all living in. Mm-hmm. I remember going to get my own test mm-hmm. and thinking it could be me. Right. And this was before the antiretrovirals. I mean, this was when HIV was pretty much a guaranteed death sentence. The question was when. Absolutely. It was a question of when. Yes. Yes. And especially if you didn't have money. Yeah. (laughs) Contacts. Insurance. And so if you were a person, especially of color, you knew it was a death sentence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What have your lives been like outside of the, you know, traveling with HIV or the Blonde Ambition Tour? I mean, what have your lives been like outside of that? 
because you've all accomplished things. They just weren't really brought up in the movie. Yeah. 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 I've been working as an actor from before I got the Blonde Ambition Tour. So a lot of what I do is still in that realm. I've done a slew of national commercials and films and TV shows. I have been writing and coaching and my life coaching work, which is the first ever movement based through dance life coaching program called Dance Formation. So I've been traveling around. I now do events with that and building out some other cool entertainment projects. And Kevin? Oh my, Uh, well I don't think I've ever really stopped doing what we were doing back in the day. (laughs) I landed off after tour and literally just auditioned the next day and kept going. Mm. And I've never stopped and it's really not because I have to be a dancer forever. It was just, I'm compelled to. It's such a part of me now and such a part of my expression and who I am and such an opportunity. The people that I've worked with over the past 26 years are my family. And why wouldn't I want to continue working with my family, seeing my family, hanging out with the people that I love, earning money and doing fun things in fun situations in exciting cities and exciting countries? I'm having a hard time giving it up, honestly. (laughs) Sometimes your body has other ideas, though. (laughs) Well, I did have my hip replaced last year. And uh, And I was back in class a month later. And and, and to see him (laughs) dance, you have no freaking idea he ever had surgery. You and Liza Minnelli. Me and Liza Minnelli. I was just going to say hashtag Liza Minnelli. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, And Lewis? My life has been a little twisty, turny. And I don't regret any of that because it's brought me to this situation today. So, but we, me and Jose recorded a little album after, it wasn't really an album, it was actually three songs on a compilation album. Which I heard a little snippet of in the film and I thought, okay, I need to go get that and put that on my workout playlist. It sounded great. It was fun to do. But these days I work a lot with this charity called Aid for AIDS, the Alliance for housing and healing because this is not only a gay disease this disease does affect women and families Mm -hmm. so this charity directly gives monies to families who are displaced due to hiv and aids and it provides medication and housing for people who are affected with hiv Madonna. I ended up doing six world tours with Madonna. And, and wow! You're like the Michael Jordan of Madonna tours. Um, <laughs> Your voice is more Madonna than Madonna. Yeah. <laughs> um, I started making my own records in 1992, and I've been continuing on. I've made a lot of records in the yoga, world music, devotional genre, and started working with Nikki on this amazing project, which I'm so excited about. Two friends. So they really just released excited. a song. We released a song. Yes! It's a cover of Rain. Yes. Can we hear a little bit? What key should we do, do it we in? Are you serious? You really want us to yeah. sing? Yeah. You I don't want you to sing. Feel it on my fingertips. Hear it on my window pane. Your love's coming down like rain. Wash away my sorrow. Take away my pain. Your love's coming down like rain. What? Oh, is that a blend or is that a blend? I mean, the whole room just lit okay. up. Oh <laughs> like, everything started bouncing yeah, off the walls. I want everybody's favorite blonde ambition memory. So many memories of that tour. This is Donna, by the way. Sometimes I'll be like waking up or going into a dream or something, mm. and things will pop back feelings of us all being out to dinner in Paris. Yes. The yeah. one that is really strong that I love and I think you guys can all relate to is at the very end of the tour, 
and Madonna said to us, we're going to do the MTV Awards. Yeah. And the feeling that this is going to continue on, this oh, creativity, yeah. and that yeah. we were all so sad to be saying goodbye, but we didn't have to really because we were going to be seeing each other. Right. And then we were all brainstorming about what the theme should be and putting in our yeah. two cents and being creative. And then went on shortly after that to do that performance. Well, first of all, I'm too old to remember what I had for lunch, so I sure don't remember much about a tour that was in 1990. No, so many waves. It's waves of feeling. Mm. So the gentleness of laying in beds that we were taking naps in together. <clears throat> As a musician, her allowing Don and I to really have some freedom to say, let's try this, let's try the groove this way. Let's put in that, you know, the keep it together is one of our, my favorite parts of the, sh of the show. Okay, let's try to put a little sly in there. The band was funky. We had this amazing bass player, Daryl Jones, who's now with the Stones. We're like, let's, let's use that. And whereas we didn't really do that in Who's That Girl, we, I, I kind of came in and we just like, here's the parts, here's the outfits, don't say nothing. <laughs> this one, it was like, no, let's try it this way. So that more collaborative feeling. Yes. That's where I got caught up in the like, we're, this is really a family, right? Because we're doing this together, right? Oh, oh, it's going in. Oh. Um, yeah. But I think because we had that collaborative feeling on so many levels, whether it be dancing, whether it be music, whether it be singing, creating arrangements together, that somewhere in our soul, we told ourselves, she can say goodbye, we ain't saying goodbye. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the part that has been really the greatest memory for me that, that continues to hold me up when I'm having moments. And we've all had those moments that get to be talked about in Striker Pose. Clearly, some people are still having the moments. But if I think it's gone, then it's gone. But it never ends. The music never dies. The dance never ends. And that's the perfect note to end on. Thanks, Kevin, Carlton, Lewis, Nikki, and Donna for sharing your stories with us. The documentary is called Strike a Pose. For IMRU Radio, I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wendell Jones. Don't go for second best, baby. Put your love to the test. You know, you know, you got to make him express how it feels. And baby, then you know your love is real. Express yourself. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you're interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder, because we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by the station, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org, even during our hiatus from the over-the-air schedule during fun drives. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. We close with a soon-to-be classic from Todrick Hall. Good night. Mask, gloves, soap, scrubs, tick, tock, grub, hub, twings, jocks, bears, cubs, zoom is the new club, six feet, no hugs, still be the
cheese mug sick beat cut a rug joe exotic is a thug kitty cat cat tell me carol baskin where is the husband everyone's asking stimulus check everybody better cash in mask and gloves yeah that's a new fashion girl what did that girl just say girl <gasps> girl i don't go to work i don't leave i stay i don't care i eat 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 and sleep all day and then i watch tv that's just the tea hunting until they set us free Ha ha ha! 